2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Welcome to ModPath Chat, the official podcast of modern pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Pathology and the Chair of Pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Neto.
3: Thank you for tuning in to a special Meet the Expert episode of our podcast. I'm honored to be joined by two distinguished guests from Johns Hopkins University. Who will discuss with us their pioneering approach of applying methodologies that was initially developed for astronomy to the assessment of biomarkers of tumor microenvironment or TME? My guest is Dr. Janice Taub, director of dermatopathology at Hopkins and a co director of the TME core at the Bloomberg Kimmel Institute of Immunotherapy, but also joining me is, you know what, I want to repeat that because I should have said my guests are. I'm used to say, so we'll start all over. Thank you for tuning in to a special Meet the Expert episode of our podcast. I'm honored to be joined by two distinguished guests from Johns Hopkins University, who will discuss with us their pioneering approach of applying methodologies that was initially developed for astronomy to the assessment of biomarkers of tumor microenvironment, or let's call it TME. My guests are Dr. Janice Tobe, Director of Dermatopathology at Hopkins, and a co-director of the TME core at the Bloomberg Kimmel Institute of Immunotherapy. Also joining me is Dr. Alex Solai, a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Astronomy and Computer Science at Hopkins. Alex is the architect for the Science Archives of Sloan Digital Sky Survey. If our audience are wondering why are we having a pathologist and an astronomer as our guests, the answer is what's called Astropath. Hopefully you'll hear a lot about that. So Astropath is a platform that our guests co-developed and was recently featured in the Economist magazine. Uh, Now it's great that pathology is making it to uh, the Economist that tells you we're really high tech and uh, we're really important. So thank you, Janice and Alex for accepting my invitation. Pleasure
4: to be here. Thanks so much for having us.
5: Yeah, thanks for having us.
3: It's it's really a pleasure. I'm very excited and uh, about uh, this discussion about what really is. Uh hopefully gonna take us into the next level. I know image analysis and digital path is the uh, third revolution in pathology, but uh, this is even uh, a step beyond. So uh, Alex, I know you spent a couple of decades uh, doing the survey for uh, the digital sky survey, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. If you can uh, share with our audience, maybe in two to three minutes, uh, what is this about? And uh, so we can set up the stage.
5: So the Sloan Digital Sky Survey started at the same time, roughly as the Human Genome Project. So the digital technology, digital imaging technology, which is also at the heart of genomics and now uh, digital pathology, just became kind of technically and, and financially available for science and so they started all in 1992 and the idea was to build a digital telescope so which didn't have photographic plates which was the kind of -of run-of-the-mill imaging device then so but build a big digital camera and build a special telescope to house this in new mexico in the us and then do survey the whole sky instead of just pointing taking a pointed observation of a small part of the sky and the idea was to do, to build everything in four years and then continue the survey and by be done by the year 2000. As it turned out, we were too optimistic and it all really started only in 2001. And then it went on until about 2018. And now it's continuing with a different instrument on the telescope. But we collected an enormous amount of data. We sometimes try to call it the Cosmic Genome Project. Uh And the the whole idea was to collect all these images of the sky then actually do very deep pointed observations of taking spectra of the closest million galaxies and make all the data immediately available for everyone to see. But in a very nice calibrated form and we created a shrink wrap database around it that everybody can log in and essentially do virtual observations of the sky, you know rain or shine and day and night anytime. And we have at this point about 7 million different people who have looked at our data, which is amazing since there are only about 15,000 professional astronomers all over the world.
3: 7 million. So, but, but
5: the digital world is really very important here in the name of the survey. And, and I think what happened really is that during these 20 years that we have been building and operating this, we saw a lot of patterns, how people started to use the data, but also patterns in what we had to do to actually automate the whole, product, how, automate the whole survey, the data processing and so on. And then once we were kind of done, it was, became very interesting that all these patterns that we learned, how can we turn it into process? how can we apply it in other scientific disciplines and and it turns out that when i met janice and we started to talk about the challenges they are facing it really became obvious that there are enormous similarities in what we have been doing. So we took large, large images of the sky and built an old sky mosaic out of it in multiple colors. This is like doing the multiplex imaging in, in the cancer imaging. So, and then we segmented the images, broke it up into stars and galaxies. This is like the cells on the images. And then we were studying the spatial relations. Among the stars and and galaxies, and, and now we are doing the spatial relations. So in a sense, I'm doing just all the same things. I've been and doing that's, you can do all
3: that without any pathology yeah. training. You just uh, bypassed uh, ten years worth of uh, stuff yeah. that Janice had to invest. Yeah. Well, that's that's what collaboration is all about. So uh, amazing. So so the term cosmic
5: genome is that before you met Janice, you thought of that name or? After? Yeah. So we kind of jokingly called ourselves so to try to uh, try to somehow convey the kind of the scope and the magnitude of the enterprise.
3: Excellent. So well wonderful so thank you for uh, for that description uh, Janice I know uh, the uh, the the proof of principle publication that you uh, you just uh, put out uh, in science I think it was the uh, June. Uh, issue of this year's science uh, about using this technology and this platform to uh, specifically uh, to melanoma uh, cohort, and, and as your interest is in immune uh, therapy and uh, markers of predicting response, uh, that was uh, that was a great uh, a great cohort to to apply it to. So, can you share with us uh, what uh, some of the challenges and uh, that you uh, tackled? As as you're starting to apply this star, star era technology to uh, to your uh, microscope images,
4: yeah, I I think that um, a lot of the challenges were there before, um, and in fact, the AstroPath platform was the the way that we were trying to answer some of those challenges. Um, the multiplex technologies put multiple markers on, on a slide, and, and we are working at about six to eight markers per slide, there's definitely technologies out there that that claim to be able to do 40 to 70. And really what, what AstroPath meant to us was an end-to-end platform that was very rigorously validated and standardized. So we wanted to make sure, even from the start that when we were staining, that it was the equivalent of what we would get in clinical practice and that it was reproducible. So for example, um, as you mentioned, we're very interested in immunotherapy and predicting outcomes to anti-PD-1 and pdl one So those were two of the markers that we put in our panel. And we, we ensured that The PDL1 that we were detecting as a part of our multiplex assay was the same that you would get if you had used a single chromogenic companion diagnostic. And I think that's what everybody assumes is happening, but in fact, um, it's not the case. And if if we had used the reagents off the shelf as if they were marketed, we would have lost 50% of our, our PD-L1 signal. So, you know, we did a lot of optimizations with marker order and staining and understanding the, the fluorophores and how they interacted with each other to be able to develop this robust panel. Um, the next thing we did, and again, I think this is also really informed by uh, me being a diagnostic pathologist, is that a lot of the multiplexing technologies look at single high-powered fields. So you're, you're sampling about a hundredth of the information on a slide. And with Alex's help, as he described, we were able to tile the en- entire slide and capture you know, numerous high-powered fields and really generate um tumor immune maps with high fidelity single cell resolution. And it was really once we had generated those very accurate maps that we were able to ask all of the scientific questions that we wanted to ask within that context. So first we mapped all the tumors and then we did, if you will, the the true experiment on the data after the data had already been generated.
3: And, and data, I mean, Oh, uh, if I if I'm mentioning it correctly, one hundred and twenty-seven thousand and four hundred images just in this study, a hundred million cells uh, mm-hmm. were captured because you're doing it at the cell level, multi-dimensional, multi-spectral at the cell level. So around trillions of pixels just for this uh, ninety-eight cases of melanoma with six markers, right? Yeah. Uh, so Alex, how how one can process all this? What is
5: <laughs> well it's only computer it's only computers so it must be a powerful computer well surprisingly well more slow can comes to the rescue you know so when we started out with the sky survey computers were slow and then basically every 18 months the performance of computers doubled the price of the discs have dropped by a factor of two so this is this is why we can do all these things that we couldn't have dreamt about this 20 years ago but but today it's actually quite easy. So it's more the software that becomes the bottleneck. The computing hardware is becoming really dis- disposable, the commodity in science, and and really writing the code is is becoming the, the more difficult thing.
3: And to, and I guess uh, we benefited from the 18 years of reiterations of improvements yeah. that we did. Yeah. And,
5: and, you know, one thing that we learned in astronomy that why doing the sky survey with its 500 million galaxies was that essentially we could discover and we have discovered incredibly rare phenomena that we didn't even know that existed before. So once you have a thousand objects, in order to say with confidence that something is there, you have to have hundreds of it. But but that's that's really only ten percent of a thousand. So so we could only with a thousand objects you can look only s- or rare objects which are ten percent rare. With hundred million objects you can look at objects which are you know ten thousand objects are are still very significant.
3: It's it struck me in uh, reading the uh, piece in the Economist uh, that you you uh, quoting you you're, you said. Already with, uh, you know, you're doing three types of tumors, uh, being a melanoma and a lung, non-small uh, lung cancer and, uh, and Merkel cell, I believe, that uh, you already, some of the images and the data, it's almost a third of uh, in the amount of, of what you've been doing for the uh, sky survey. Is that? Uh, is no, that- it's,
5: I think already we, we surpassed the sky survey's pixels, the number wow. of pixels. <laughs> I, I was amazed when I actually counted up. By, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of pixels.
4: Yeah,
3: lots of
5: pixels. So. Almost 10 trillion pixels. So.
3: Oh my and God. Go Alex's ahead. Alex's
4: point about a uh, rare events. That was um, one of the, the fun findings of our study is gonna... we found uh, a rare cell type of CD8 cell that's also Fox P3 positive. And the function of this cell had not been previously well described. Historically, people had thought that it might be a suppressor T cell. And more recently um, there have been reports suggesting it might be an effector T cell. And we were able to identify that with certainty in, in our large data sets. And it's actually a killer T cell um, hmm. and not a, a regulatory T cell. And we found this unexpected combination of of markers that was actually the most highly predictive feature of response to immunotherapy. And then we were able to turn around and go back and localize it right to the tumor stromal border in such a way that substantiated our hypothesis about its function. In conjunction with collaborators, we were also able to look at some single cell data. But it is a real rare cell type and we wouldn't have been able to find it um, with um, without having the large data volumes that we had and know that it was a real signal and not just noise.
3: So you were able to find that rare star or rare uh, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 incidence of of these cells. Were you able, when you mentioned, look, look at the, uh, the cell level, You mean uh, lift them, do transcriptomic, and uh, because I know your platform is capable of that, to identify those cells and do further analysis?
4: Yeah, we didn't actually. We used a pre-existing single-cell data set that one of our collaborators, Drew Pardol, had and asked him to do some some computational work on it. But I think the, the fun thing was Drew had always anticipated that their single cell data would inform the markers that we then validated in protein on AstroPath. And for us, this was great because we were the ones who had identified this previously unappreciated biology, even with just the, the six markers that we were looking at, not the thousands of markers that people typically think of with single cell. And it was Drew who went back to his data and actually validated our finding. And they had they had discarded that because it had been such a rare finding. They weren't sure, and they thought it was noise. But, but together, we were able to substantiate the, the work and potentiate each other's science.
3: So- then again, this was a proof of principle. You 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 guys want to take it to twenty to thirty uh, mar- m- multiplex uh, markers, uh, and uh, and I'm sure that's that's going to lead to even identifying other uh, other biomarkers or combinations or mm-hmm. uh, rare cells, rare interactions that are important and informative. Uh, but uh, how uh, how do you see this? Because I know the ultimate aim for you, Janice, is—is uh, is can we transform this into a standardized test that uh, all of us, or at least reference laboratories, and not everyone has uh, Dr. alive in uh, in their team, and uh, so how and and all the computational power, how do you see that transition, and how long far ahead uh, is is are we going to have to wait for that? Well, I, the work
4: that we have done already as um, shows a highly predictive biomarker for patients with melanoma receiving anti-PD-1 based therapies. And it would be possible, I believe, within the next three to five years to have a commercial version of that assay moved to clinic. But to your your bigger question about what happens next, how do we handle these these 30 markers? I I think what we are really in the phase of right now is uh, data generation and curation. And what we're going to want to do is look at all of these markers and then distill them down to the key ones that are orthogonal to each other. I don't think our vision or that, that we anticipate that we'll need 30 markers to predict. Mm, the question is just what are the best six or seven or eight that are out there. And and then we'll be able to design an an assay around that. And I think that more comprehensive question, I would put more on the the five to eight year timeline. We have a specific focus on, on pan tumor signatures as well. So we're really trying to reach across tumor types, but it also increases the, the time and the number of cases that, that we'll need to look at.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. For full, important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the
2: Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind.
2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Excellent. So, uh, so, and, and you think we're going to be locked into, if you develop on six, seven markers, and we're going to be locked into the immunofluorescence or can this uh, uh, go back to chromogenic uh, uh, staining or what, what is your expectation?
4: I had anticipated that um, we would, in fact, be able to reduce our, our findings back down to chromogenic. But one of the, the key things that we showed in Astropath was our ability to robustly measure marker intensity in situ. So you can think of it as doing flow cytometry on tissue. So rather than just looking at is a cell PD-1 positive or negative, you can say, is it expressing PD-1 at low, mid, or high levels? And that actually has important biological import. It it, uh, connotes a different functional state of those T cells and they have different biomarker potentials. And in fact, we found those that express PD-1 at at low and mid to be much more highly predictive of response than those that express PD-1 at at high levels. And so one, this this answers a question of PD-1 protein is, of course, the target of many of these agents. And we had wondered why um, PD-1 densities alone didn't necessarily predict responses is one of one of the potential answers to that. But it does get to your question of, can we take our findings and reduce it back to chromogenic? If you do that, you lose your dynamic range and that intensity value. So there is added value of being able to do intensity. And there will be specific use cases where I think we want to maintain immunofluorescence I think there will be others where we can probably go back to chromogenic and, and mm-hmm. run those readily, but intensity does add value.
3: Yeah, I mean specifically in those uh, rare cells you mentioned, the CD eight positive FoxP uh, positive, and they were like them low or mid for PD one and that you would have not been able to do with multiplexing of uh, any different three colors on chromogen, right? So
5: yeah.
3: Well, uh, fascinating. And uh, so, uh, Alex, what's what's next? How do you see this project evolving and what other... Uh, I know you're still working on uh, on the Sky Survey, the Digital Sky oh, Survey. What you see... Uh, <coughs> can it help us in, in other things beside image analysis uh, of... of our uh, our scopes.
5: Well, so first of all, so we are trying to work very actively into our, our way into spatial uh, transcriptomics. So how can we combine spatial genomic data with this, which may provide you know some insight if we can assign the spatial spatial information to the genomic information. After, under each bead in the spatial transcriptomics, there are probably 100 cells, a mixture of 100 cells. So the genomic signal is a superposition of the contribution of all those cells. And if we collect enough data, maybe we can statistically decompose into individual components, which may tell us about about additional proteins that are expressed, which are part of the regulatory process. And and then we can try to, so this will, genomics will always be too expensive to scale out on a massive scale, what we are doing with imaging. And this might kind of guide us, you know, that what, Additional staining, Janice discover, and, and and so hand in hand, kind of we kind of leapfrog on on step by step onto each to to find actually new new stains and and then get new biological insight on a massive scale.
3: Excellent. Uh, Janice, you touched on that, and that, that should be our last question is, uh, you mentioned that selecting which high power field, the strategy that this thing uh, can, that the, the astro path can, can help you with. Uh, so because it's whole slide, right? And you're scanning and you're tiling up all, all. It, what do you have anything to say about that i mean is it is there a small number of high field high power fields that we can substitute or we're going to have to do it on on whole slides and because as as you can imagine that decreases the need for computational power if we can substitute the right high power fields to uh, the correct ones
4: yeah well i think biomarker development and technology development are, are really moving ahead hand in hand and um, there's definitely emerging technologies um, and some multiplexing platforms that are moving to whole slide imaging that are going to be um, computationally lighter than what we had been using originally. What what we did as a part of this study was to acquire the whole slide, but to do it in discrete image tiles. And then that allowed us to ask, is there added value diagnostically in terms of which areas of the slide you sample? So I'm, I know many of the listeners are, are familiar with Jerome Gallon and the Immunoscore project. And in colorectal cancer, they, they deliberately sample from the central and the peripheral edge of the tumor. And there are some other groups who suggest that looking at the, the immune hotspots mm-hmm. is what you really need to look for. So you know, Sutton's law, you rob the rob the bank because that's where the money is, right? And so we we looked at these different sampling strategies. And, and what we found, and especially because of the CD8 FOXP3 rare cell that we're talking about, is that the, the biggest diagnostic advantage was when we'd acquired all of the slide, ranked these fields by CD8 density and took the top 30% of the slides of those fields. And that's where we got the biggest diagnostic discriminating power between who was going to respond and who wasn't going to respond. The other important thing about how we did this, it was again all done computationally so uh, pathologists now as they're choosing these fields do it manually and it's user dependent even with the best intentions and here there's a, a computer that's selecting the high power fields for you and so it should be highly reproducible no matter what institution you are and, and what machine you're you're using and so I think that's a, a big step forward in terms of moving these into clinical care.
3: Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It's been really uh, an exciting and fascinating uh, discussion. I, uh, I'm uh, so uh, happy that we got the opportunity to do this. And I thank you both and look forward uh, to hearing uh, about your other th- discoveries soon. And hopefully some of them can be submitted to modern pathology, Janice. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you.
4: It's a, it's a pleasure. We've had a blast yeah. working together and it's, it's fun to share it with others.
5: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you very much for
1: your invitation. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions. Music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.